0: them out and turn once again to the book of isaiah and this morning we're going to be looking at isaiah chapter uh, chapters 31 and 32 isaiah chapters 31 and 32 let me remind you this morning as we begin that this is god's good and kind and gracious word this is for you this morning Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit." When the Lord stretch out his hand, the helper will stumble, stumble, and he who helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem." He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to Him from whom from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, every one shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like, a shade, uh, like the shade of a rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will, be, will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, And to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women." For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the... Exultant city for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for him to... Help us understand this word. Pray with me. Our Father, we do thank you again for giving us your word so that we can know the truth, so that we can see uh, the light of the world and we can have life by it. Father, I pray that you would give us life today, that this word would be a life-giving word to us, that we might be transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things we do as a church is children's catechesis, or we do the children's catechism. And that simply means that we teach the truth of our faith to our children. We help them to hide the beauty of God's word in their hearts. Now, the ancient and most effective way of doing this Was by teaching them simple questions and answers. And there's one question early in the Children's Catechism that I always pause over. Question nine asks this What is God? And the correct answer is God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body like men. And every time I ask that question and get the answer, My mind does kind of this short-circuit thing. And my gut-level reaction to that question and answer is, wait a second, Jesus is God. Jesus had a body like a man. Therefore, God must have a body like a man. And that question and answer, even though it's for children, raises theological and logical paradoxes that even my five-year-old son can recognize. And every time we go through the catechism together, he has follow-up questions that he asks, not related to the catechism uh, questions and answers. Uh, Now, I don't have time to do a deep dive into how you resolve that paradox, uh, but there is a resolution for that, and it's actually a simple one. My purpose is to illustrate for you that Christianity is a religion that is full of paradoxes. Now, some of you might think, well, if Christianity is full of paradoxes, then that means that it's illogical or contradictory, but that's not the case. A paradox is an apparent contradiction, but that's all it is. It's an apparent contradiction, and once you look at it a little bit closely, or a little bit closer, the contradiction goes away. And there are multiple types of paradoxes in Christianity. You have the theological paradoxes that I just mentioned, but there's also what I'll call practical paradoxes of Christianity. And let me give you an example of that, uh, of a practical paradox. Um, Jesus says that if someone slaps you in the face, you are to turn the other cheek. Now, everything inside of our being screams that if somebody slaps me in the face, I am not going to give them my other cheek to slap. I'm going to slap them back. But the gospel demands that Christians do not retaliate and do not respond in that way. And you think, well, if I don't do that, then I'm not going to just get slapped once. I'm going to get slapped twice. And what Jesus says is that we are to be obedient to Jesus, that even though it It screams everything in our nature says, don't do it. Jesus says that if you do and when you do respond to that paradox by doing something contrary to what your nature says to do, then you will be blessed in doing that, that you receive a reward for doing that. Now, if that's true, if there are these practical paradoxes in life, well, how in the world are we to do what we're commanded to do according to the gospel? How can we respond and live in the midst of all of these paradoxes? And I think that's the question that Isaiah is answering for us today. Uh, Isaiah continues to warn Judah against seeking help from Egypt. And Isaiah's reasoning is actually very simple. Egypt isn't as strong as they and everyone thinks that they are. He lays out for us the actual powerlessness of Egypt and the foolishness of going to them for help, And ultimately, the results of depending upon them uh, for help. Um, or really even depending on physical things for security. And he wants to shake people out of their spiritual dullness and their complacency. So we see that message today. We need the same message as well. Uh, so here are the three points as we work through this passage. First, we're going to see the power of the Spirit... Over the flesh So the power of the spirit over the flesh in verses one through nine. Secondly, we're going to see the benefit of righteousness over foolishness. And then third, we're going to see the bounty of the spirit's work over man's inability. And you see that in, in uh, 32, nine through20. All right, so let's begin with the power of the spirit over the flesh in verses one through nine. So look, look quickly at verse three. Look at verse three. This is the main verse in this section. This is kind of the crux upon which everything else else uh, 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 bends. Uh, and here's what it says. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. You see, what Judah has done is they have fled to mere men for their help. And God has warned his people over the centuries since the Exodus event to never go back to Egypt for help. In Deuteronomy 17:16, the kings of Israel were expressly forbidden from going to Egypt to buy horses and chariots from Egypt. And in that section, God reminds Israel that they are to be a nation unlike any other nation, and their king is to not be like any other king. Uh, as a nation, they were not to have a strong military. They were not to have abundant resources. And the king, interestingly, was not to have many wives, which was a way of saying he wasn't supposed to have political treaties with all of the other nations around him. Why was he not to do that? Because they were not merely an earthly nation. Israel, was, as a nation, was, the, was a display of the heavenly kingdom of God on earth. They were to be a physical representation to the nations around them about the spiritual realities of God's rule. But what did Judah do? They went back to Egypt, and they were relying upon and trusting on those chariots, and they refused to rely or trust in the Holy One of Israel. Not only did they not trust Him, but they didn't even bother to consult the Lord regarding their decision. Not one of the king's advisors looked right outside of the king's window because the king's palace was right next to the temple. Not one of the king's advisors looked over and said, you know, God is right over there. Let's just go consult with him before we make these plans. No one did that. They did what was natural to them. They went to an earthly king for help. They went to the flesh and not the spirit. All right. So the Lord says that Egypt's protection is going to fail, and it's going to fail quickly. And it actually is going to fail with just a word from the Lord. And the reason for their quick fall is in comparison to Yahweh, Egypt is just a feeble man. You see how the Lord describes, you know, Egypt and the horses, they are flesh and not spirit. But then look at how he describes himself in verses 4 and 5. He says... Uh, that he is like a lion who has descended upon a helpless uh, uh, sheep. And so a lion descends on a sheep, you know, tears this sheep to pieces, and he's sitting over his prey while the shepherds come back to try to scare off the lion in order to protect their other uh, sheep. And what does the lion do? He crouches over it and he just growls at the shepherds. They're standing off at a distance trying to be safe. And the lion is not fazed by them at all. And the Lord says, that's what he's like. And these nations, the nations of Assyria and Egypt are just like those shepherds. They're nothing compared to the Lord. And he's not afraid of them. That's what God is like. The, the nations of the world are maybe temporary nuisances to the Lord, but nothing more than that. And then in verse 5, interestingly, God compares himself... To birds, he says, I'm like birds hovering over the nest at various times. uh, Well, you'll see this in Jerusalem uh, because Jerusalem is up on a high or up on a mountain and there's craggy rocks all around and birds would come and make their nests in the rocks. Uh, and mama birds at certain points of the day, whenever the sun would be beating down directly on top of the bird or on top of the nest, they would go right outside of the nest and they would hover and they would flutter and they would fan their babies and fan their nest. But also in doing that they would provide shade for their nest. And God says that's what he's like. He's going to be like a mama bird hovering over her nest, protecting his people, taking, the heat of the day from his, from his children. He says that's what he's like. And then at the end of verse 5, uh, the ESV uses a, a word there. It says at the end of verse 5, He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. That word spare actually is the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 12, except in Exodus chapter 12, that word is translated as Passover, that the Lord will pass over. Now, he's talking about Isaiah's talking about Egypt, and he mentions the Passover. And what Isaiah is wanting his readers to do is to think back to the Passover event. And what did God do in the Passover event? He sent the angel of the Lord as the destroyer to destroy the enemies of God's people, but also to withhold destroying his own people who were covered by the blood. And Isaiah is saying that's what God is like. Remember what God is like. He rescued you from Egypt by passing over and sparing you. Why are you going back there again? So it's one of those things that we need to remember. And, and the point is this God is a spirit, and He doesn't have a body like a man. And spirit beats flesh every single time. I think the main problem that we have in our life is that we are practical atheists. Most of the day, we're so taken up with the physical realities of our life that we fail to remember that God even exists. In verse 6, Isaiah calls the Judeans to repent of their practical atheism. And we need to do the same thing. We need to turn away from our physical securities, the things that we have placed our hope in, in this world, and turn to the Lord. And why should we do this? At the very end of verse 9, he tells us why. And this is really interesting. He says, declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Why should we depend upon the Lord? We should depend upon the Lord because he is terrifying. (laughs) Isn't that a paradox? Go to the one who is terrifying, who is all fire and furnace. Why? Because if you are his enemy, you get the fire. But if you are his child, you get the hovering bird who protects, who fans, who saves. To his enemies, fire. To his children, protecting lion even and nurturing bird. So you see, that, that you see the power of the Spirit over the flesh. Secondly, you see the benefit of righteousness over foolishness in verses 1 through 8. Uh, or 32, 1 through 8, I'm sorry, 32, 1 through 8. Um, in, this, in this section, uh, Isaiah says essentially the same thing uh, that Jesus says in Matthew twelve three. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is to say that, that you will act according to what you are. You will do according to what you are inside. You will do what is already in your heart. So if you are a fool, you are going to do foolish things. If you're noble, you're going to do noble things. But the problem for us is that it's hard to know for sure what exactly is foolish and what is noble. Uh, we live in a world, and the Judeans live in a world, where true in, the true intentions of the heart of every individual, and even, uh, in, in even the actions of men and the resulting actions of men, are concealed. So that running to Egypt, even though it was foolish, it looked like a good idea. And Isaiah is saying in this section, there's going to be a day when foolish things are going to be shown to be foolish and righteous things are going to be show, shown to be righteous. But since the days of Genesis 3 and up to right now, we do not live in that time. Now we live in a time when, as we see in verse 5, the fool is called noble and the scoundrel, scoundrels are said to be honorable. Some will say, well, and this is the result of the world, this is what the world says. Well, if, if foolish people are considered honorable, then it's better to act foolish and be considered honorable than to act honorably and be considered foolish. But that's the thinking that ignores the spiritual reality of the world that we live in. The fool says that we should live for today and disregard what comes tomorrow. In verse 6, the one that is foolish utters errors concerning the Lord. Doctrinal matters. He's he's got his doctrine, but it's error concerning the Lord. The foolish one forgets that we are being ruled right now by a righteous king who rules right now in truth and justice. This is an example of that, but there are those today that promote stealing in the name of justice. They promote... uh, Violence in the name of peace. That is backwards. That is foolishness. But to many today, that sounds enlightened. And sadly, that's the world that we live in. But Isaiah is comparing ultimately in this section the righteous king of heaven with the unrighteous kings of the nations of the earth. And he says, you know, it might seem like a good idea to trust in those kings and princes because you can see them. And that's true of conservative kings and princes and liberal kings and princes. To put your, all of your trust in them, it might seem like a good idea. But trusting them in them is really trusting in foolishness. It's much better to trust in the king of righteousness Trust in Yahweh. Why? Because he always acts in truth and justice. He never does anything wrong. So the point is this. There is a benefit to following the king of righteousness today, even if it doesn't feel like it. The king of righteousness cares for his children, but the foolish king, all of the idols of the world, are actually oppressive tyrants. And Isaiah says, don't trust in oppressive tyrants don't trust in fools, trust in the Lord. So that's 32, 1 uh, through 8. And then finally, we see the bounty of the Spirit's work over man's inability in 32, 9 through 20. So Isaiah turns his attention to the women of Judah uh, kind of at the beginning of the section, he's dealing with the men. And now he says, I haven't forgotten about the women. Let's deal with the women. What are they like? Well, the women of Judah are at ease and they've grown complacent in their relationship with the Lord. And let me just say as a uh, commentary to that, that when women grow complacent with their relationship to the Lord, we're in trouble. Most churches are full of women while the men I think it's not a manly thing to do. Well, if even the women are complacent, you're in a lot of trouble. I mean, you're in trouble anyway if the men think that way, but especially if the women are acting this way and doing these things. Now, these women, they have a struggle that is a normal one. They've grown complacent with their relationship with the Lord because they see that their current harvest is plentiful. They look out and they say, you know, our storehouses are full our children are fed, and they conclude that they have no need to worry about the spiritual dangers of the future. And in verse 9, Isaiah says they are at ease and they are complacent. Those words can just as easily mean they are self-assured and self-confident. Their focus is on self Now, they should be concerned about their spiritual condition, but their present material prosperity has blinded them to their real spiritual danger. Now, this is a warning to women, but this is also a warning to men who place priority on material things of the world. You see, it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account today. It could all be gone tomorrow. It doesn't matter how things are going for you today because it could be completely gone and changed tomorrow. And what you ultimately need when it's all gone is only what the Spirit can give you. In verse 15, Isaiah says that everything is going to be in ruin for these people until, and this is the most important thing, the Spirit is poured out from on high. Then, And only then, after the Spirit gives the gift of righteousness, will peace follow. In verse 17, after the Spirit is poured out and righteousness is given, God's people are going to be quiet and they're going to trust forever. This is Reformed Theology 101. Man is completely unable to do anything for himself spiritually and is wholly dependent upon the Lord, upon God the Father pouring out his Spirit on his children. And when the Spirit is poured out, when God pours out his Spirit, the righteousness that we so desperately need is given, and it's the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that God requires. And when that happens, what happens to us? we begin to trust in the Lord. The promise that goes along with this is when God pours out His Spirit, He also pours out more than we need. That's what verse 20 is all about. It's a weird verse. And if you're reading through this and you get to verse 20, you might understand everything. And then verse 20, you go, what is He talking about? He's talking about people who are so at ease because the Lord has given them his spirit that they're, they just let animals go wherever they want to go. They don't worry about the produce of their field because they just graze wherever because the Lord has given more than, than uh, they need and they're not worried about anything. That's what verse 20 is all about. Let me sum it up in this way. A few years ago, a friend began to, uh, a friend, uh, began to tell me about his plan Uh, to be financially independent. He made really good money and he figured out that if he could have $5 million in the bank, then he could live off the interest and he would not have to work. He could retire at basically at 40 years old. And he thought that was a pretty good plan. And he worked his plan. He worked hard and everything was going well. Well, about two years after that conversation, he called me broken to pieces because his wife was leaving him and he couldn't see his child anymore. He had lots of money in the bank, but that money couldn't save his marriage or his relationship with his child. What my friend was doing was running to Egypt. He was running to horses. He was running to chariots. He was running to the things of the world that the world says, this is your security. But He didn't have the most important thing. He didn't have the spirit of the Lord for his security. Here's what you need. You don't need more money. You don't need more earthly security. You need the spirit. And we need to pray for the spirit to be poured out on us today. Pray that we would experience the bounty of his work and to be transformed by him and not ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. And Father, we need to be reminded of this constantly, that it's not up to us or what we can do. It's not up to anything in this world or or anything that we uh, have in the flesh, but it's up to the spirit, ultimately your spirit being poured out on us. Father, uh, we need the spirit poured out in this nation. We need the spirit poured out, not just in this nation, but in this church. We need you. We are dependent upon you. Do that for us, for your sake, Father, not for our own, for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.